Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks for listening in on another episode. Or if this is your first time stopping by, I'm grateful to have you. This podcast is all about the getting started moments, the turning points that got each guest started on a new path toward happiness, the ups and downs of the journey, how they were able to commit to a change, and all the lessons learned along the way. I hope you all enjoyed this particular episode, so let's jump right in and get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Guy Kawasaki, who is the chief evangelist of Canva and the creator of Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People podcast. He is an executive fellow of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, an adjunct professor of the University of New South Wales. He was the chief evangelist of Apple and a trustee of the Wikimedia Foundation. He has written Wise Guy, The Art of the Start 2.0, The Art of Social Media, Enchantment, and 11 other books. Kawasaki has a BA from Stanford University, an MBA from UCLA, and an honorary doctorate from Babson College. And I certainly took a little different spin on this week's episode. We definitely went a little more wide-ranging into the edges of some of the things that maybe he doesn't talk about as much because the guy's done hundreds of interviews throughout his career. And I wanted to, you know, kind of look at this from a different perspective of, you know, someone that's very entrepreneurial like him, someone that's done so much in his career. How does he think about becoming a beginner learner again, like with surfing? Or how did he think about parenting? And we get into some different topics away from just his career, which we touch on, of course, throughout and some of the different lessons that he's learned along the way. So I really enjoyed this interview. I hope you all do as well. And without further ado, please welcome in Guy Kawasaki. Guy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for uh, jumping on today. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. What could be better than doing this on a Friday afternoon? Well, that's, uh, yeah, I can't think of much better stuff. And, I, and I'm really grateful to have you on. I've, uh, obviously, I've followed your journey for a lot of years, and, uh, and I certainly appreciate it. And I'm, you know, I'm interested, as I, as I have guests on, and everyone has varying backgrounds. You obviously have a very rich background and kind of out there a lot. I thought I'd take up maybe a little different angle. Obviously, this is about getting started and all the different things, whether it's an entrepreneur or someone else just kind of jumping into things. So I thought maybe to go some different, maybe go to the edges with you, okay. try to get into some stuff maybe folks don't know, and then we'll jump around um, okay. as I like to do here. So I thought I'd start here if we can. You have something on LinkedIn several years ago where you started surfing at 62. <laughs> 60. And you, well, you said in five years, you wanted to be able to surf waves bigger than you. So I'm curious, yeah. now it's been about five years. <laughs> Talk to me about the journey of surfing and being well, that beginner learner again. If you, if you bend your knees far enough, then the waves are equal to your height. <laughs> Um, yeah, I took up surfing at about 60 and I'm 67 now. And I took it up because mostly my daughter took it up, although all my kids surf, but my daughter is really an enthusiastic surfer. And I just fell in love with surfing. I, I moved because of surfing. I've changed houses because of surfing. I have, I must own a dozen boards. I surf every day. After this, I'm going to surf. I don't know why I scheduled you at prime, you know, low tide. I, that was just an unforeseen. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> if I if I had hindsight, I would have scheduled you at high tide because where I surf, uh, low tide is better to surf. So <laughs> what made you get in? I mean, because obviously you waited a lot of years to get into that. Like what was the what was the spark that said? 
God, I got to try this. What I've been missing out. My daughter and my daughter, you know, started surfing. And so we went to Hawaii on a vacation. I started paddleboarding and then people humiliated me for paddleboarding instead of surfing. So, you know, one thing led to another and now it's, I would, it would be honest to say it is an obsession. Hmm. <laughs> so, so going back, cause I'm always interested, especially someone like yourself with such a rich history, you have a lot of obviously experiences to get on that board for the first time and be a beginner again. Yeah. Can you think back just a few years? Like, what was that like? What were some of the things you, you kind well, of, the, the challenges you went through that might be helpful for folks out there getting started with anything? Well, the bottom line is, I think it shows a lot of one's sort of perspective in life. And I would say that not many people would take up surfing at 62. In fact, among my you know peers, I would say that you know if they play a round of golf, they consider that you know strenuous exercise. Yeah. And so a lot of it is uh, a learning mentality that no matter how old you are, that you can still learn new skills. Uh, that's partially. Another one is you have to suck up your ego because trust me when I tell you, for the first five years of surfing, maybe even the first seven, you don't look so good out there. So. Uh, you know, if if you are easily embarrassed and humiliated, uh, you you would just not take up something at such a late age. Hmm. So that's partially, and and you know you can apply these lessons to careers too, right? So if if you've been a programmer all your life and now at sixty you want to try marketing or sales, or you've been marketing and sales all your life and now you want to try programming or another industry, um, do you say to yourself, "I'm too old"? can't learn or do you say to yourself i can learn and do you say to yourself so what if i look like a jerk for a few years uh, eventually i'll you know i'll achieve mastery not that i have achieved mastery but i'm yeah. closer <laughs> than i used to be how do you think you i guess that mindset because it's such a great mindset you have on it how do you think you you came to that was that something earlier in your life that that always stuck with you or is that something uh, later on did you kind of I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, it's not like I have been, you know, giving up a lot of stuff. And and I, by giving up, I mean sacrifice. I don't mean sacrificing. I mean giving up, meaning I give up. I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, on the other hand, I don't want to paint a picture that, you know, I am such a greedy person that I can accomplish anything because <laughs> that ain't true. Mm. So I don't know. I just... You know, partially it's because I fell in love with it. So at 44, I fell in love with hockey. At 60, I fell in love with surfing. Uh, I would say that, you know, most people would say at 44, it's too late to take up hockey, having never skated before. And 60, is too late to take up surfing, having never surfed before. But not me. <laughs> well, and, and, and I see this a lot. I mean, obviously, I've been through this. Um, actually, as we're as we're talking today is a four year anniversary of this podcast. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about, you know, starting that and the fear and anxiety and all that stuff, but it seems like throughout your career, your life, even, and share whatever stories, if you want to interject here, but it seems like you've always taken, like, you didn't just say like, All right, I'm gonna do this job. And I worked that for 30 years. Like, it seems like you've, you've kind of jumped to new things, yeah. new endeavors, things that kind of got you excited, maybe would that be an accurate representation? That, that would be very accurate. So there has been no overall life plan. And I happened to fall in love with, you know, Macintosh, I happened to fall in love with 
entrepreneurship. So I started a few companies. I fell in love with speaking. I fell in love with podcasting most recently. So between podcasting and surfing, I don't have time for anything else. Um, and I fell in love with Canva. I'm chief evangelist of Canva. So I have a lot on my plate um, for someone who is, you know, quote unquote, semi-retired. <laughs> How do you like the podcasting game? You've I done over 100, over 100 episodes now, right? Yeah, I love podcasting. I was born for podcasting. I wish I had taken it up earlier, but I wish I had taken up surfing and hockey earlier too. So I've been podcasting for about two and a half years. And um, man, if I had taken up podcasting five years ago or six years ago and when the pioneers did, I would own podcasting today. But it is not trivial to start podcasting late in the game, not, not in terms of my chronological age, but late in the game in terms of many of the podcasting winners have already been selected. And so you're now you're trying to break into a crowded field as opposed to being a pioneer in the field. So listen, if, you, if you're Michelle Obama, you can start podcasting five years from now and you'll succeed. But for the rest of us, and I put myself in that category, um, it's definitely breaking through noise. That's not an easy thing. What's been the hardest part of the, uh, of the podcasting journey for you? By far getting subscribers. Um, mm. You know, my, my content... I would put my content up against anybody's. Um, so there's content and, and content means you have to book speakers, you have to edit it, you know, all that kind of stuff, all that. I got that wired. That is no problem. The hardest part for me. And I would say, I bet you the hardest part for most podcasters, if they were honest, is how do you get subscribers? And I don't know the answer to that question yet. It is challenging. Cause I, I mean, I look at it again, been doing this for several years. It's like, yeah. And, and I'm a nobody, you know, now I started, you know, started from the bottom. Um, but I, I, to, to your point, there's so much content out there. There's so yeah. many different avenues that you can be pulled. And I even, you know, I've talked to a lot of friends and family that rarely do they even listen to podcasts. You know, I'm, yeah. I listen to hours each week on walks or working out or whatever. And, but I, I think I'm in the kind of the exception, not the rule yet. So I wish, you're, I wish there were more people like you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, but you, to your point, though, there you have to have that thirst for knowledge, but then you also have to like that medium because some people maybe want to watch videos or want to read articles. I enjoy the audio aspect to it. That's just and how I, I learn. And but, I enjoy editing. Yeah. So I think if you want to be a good podcaster, you have to be a good editor. But having said that, I'm unusual because I think many podcasters, I don't know what your your method is, but after I record, so I use, you know, something like what we're using or, you know, you, we're using Zoom right now, right? Mm -hmm. So I use Squadcast because Squadcast is a double ender, i.e. there's two local recordings, yours and mine, whereas Zoom is all in the cloud. So from Squadcast, I get two uh, wave files. Those two wave files are uploaded to Descript. Descript transcribes them. And with Descript, I don't know if you use Descript, but Descript, you get a written transcription. And if you edit the transcription, you are editing the audio. So you have to wrap your mind around that. That is a key, key feature. So when I select the word in Descript text and I delete that word, the audio is deleted too. So I would spend hours editing and then a sound designer and then a sound designer takes his whack at it. 
And so I would say for a one-hour episode of Remarkable People, there's probably maybe four or five hours of editing in it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, whereas some people believe you just turn on the recorder and it's, you know, true to life. What you see is what you get. Every, every, everything is recorded and played. And I don't, I do a lot of editing. Um, I, I, you know, my podcast is called remarkable people. So I think it's my responsibility to make my guests seem as, as remarkable as possible. And one of the things that makes people seem less remarkable than they are is, some of them are not natural interviewees. Mm. And so they say, um, and, uh, and well, and, you know, and, uh, see, I did it just now. And so I, I take almost all of those out. And I can tell you in one hour, you'd be surprised that some of the people you interview in one hour, they say, um, ah, well, or, you know, 300 times. Yeah. You know, it's inter- it's so interesting the perspective on it now that we're kind of getting down this rabbit hole because yeah, yeah I take the opposite approach. Yeah. I rarely edit because I like the I'll use the word authentic just for lack of a better yeah. vocabulary right now, but I kind of like the um because again, the whole point of getting started is there's a lot of folks that are on that curve where it's like they're 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 just getting over the edge and they haven't started. So I want them to hear like, hey, Guy Kawasaki, he, he says ums and ohs, and hey, he's he's a human being just like any of us. Yeah, so, you know, I, mean, I, th- I I understand this. Your audience are all podcasters, beginning podcasters. No, a lot um, of the audience are entrepreneurs, business owners. Uh, 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 yeah, a lot of a lot of folks that are kind of looking to kind of get that dose of inspiration to get started. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's just a different philosophy. I I want people to listen to my podcast. And at the end of the podcast, I want every time, 52 times a year, I want them to say, my God, that was an articulate guest. And saying, um, 250 times is not conducive (laughs) to that conclusion. That's a a fair point. How do you, you, uh, because obviously this is something I struggle with. Like you only have so many guests. If you're doing one a week, how Mm -hmm. do you, how do you choose the guests that you want to have on? Well, there's a shortage of remarkable people in the world. So it's not, you know, this, uh, actually, that's not true. There are more than 52 remarkable people a year. But uh, case, I guess I'm looking for people who are remarkable. And it doesn't mean they're rich or famous. It just means that they're remarkable. So you can be a remarkable school teacher who's not worth a billion dollars that no one has ever heard of other than your school district or your school or your class. And that qualifies for me. You don't have to be Elon Musk to be on my podcast. Having said that, I have, you know, Jane Goodall and Margaret Atwood and Steve Wozniak on my podcast. But I also have people you never would have heard of who snuck across or were snuck across the U.S.-Mexico border and now they're a thriving middle manager at Adobe. I have people who have started... uh, facilities to help families who have kids with uh, down syndrome i mean mm-hmm. not everybody is you know famous in the influencer sense of the word i i try to get a balance mm. yeah well it's good i mean just the fact that you're out there and and you're putting in the effort as you said and you're like hey, i love doing it that's the most important thing i think you know yeah i think sharing those stories because again it's a new medium even though it's right. been around for a lot of years it is still new considering other stuff so 
Um, I, I want to jump around a little bit because I was okay. kind of, I was kind of curious, you know, one of the things that I love chatting about is how generally how we start off life is not where we end up. There's a lot of these <laughs> turning points. Yeah. And I actually wanted to pick up something that was, and, and maybe you've talked about this before. Um, I haven't it's heard okay. you, you talk about it, but around quitting law school, you went for it yeah. like two weeks. Tell yep. me about that time in your life. Like, yeah. is that, was that the dream, if you will? Or you said well, you kind of think doing it for your parents, but yes, my parents, you know, I'm Asian American. So back then your parents wanted you to be a doctor, lawyer, or dentist. Uh, and I just did not want to stick my hand in people's bodies. So that left law and I could not stand law school. It was just, I was intimidated. It's scary. You know, they would basically want to tell you that you're crap and I'm going to remake your brain. I just could not handle that. Um, <laughs> did, did you, to, uh, when you, well, when you were in that kind of period, because I, again, I know a lot of things I struggle with is like, you know, the, whether it's parents or friends or family, the judging of like, wait mm -hmm. a minute, you're quitting law school. You're not doing it. Like, was that a tough oh, yeah, for you? Oh, uh, for an Asian American quitting law school for, you know, time for uh, seppuku. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it was hard, but my father to my utter amazement said, you know, it's okay. As long as you make something of your life by your mid twenties. So he, you know, he gave me another five years to do something. <laughs> well, at least you got a little, uh, a little opportunity there. That's right. I mean, I have no regrets. I, you know, I would have been a great lawyer, but <laughs> it's not like I'm laying awake saying, Oh God, if only I had been law school, uh, I would be happy. That, that is, that is not true. <laughs> well, you know, you know, what's interesting too, is how kind of serendipity rears its head and, and tell me, fact check me on this, but I, is it right that the opportunity with Apple came because of your roommate? Did I oh, read yeah. that right? Is that okay? My, so I kind of look yeah. at serendipity. If you don't have that roommate, maybe. It's more, that, <laughs> well, it's more than serendipity. It's nepotism. I mean, let's, you know, I was not qualified for that position. There's no if, ands, or buts. So, you know, uh, the lesson there is not so much, uh, you know, depend on nepotism. Uh, the lesson there is it doesn't matter how you get the job. What matters is what you do once you have it, mm. right? So, you know, if you're like the boss's son or daughter and you get the job that way, uh, okay. But then, you know, what do you do with the position afterwards? Are you just living off your reputation or living off your family or living off your genetics? Or are you actually doing something? And that's the test. Well, how do you think? Because I, I, if again, I'm Fact check me on the research here, but you mentioned some days you felt that you were going to be promoted and other days you're going to be fired. So like, how do you think you made yeah, it in, that, in the same in day? That, yeah. How do you think you <laughs> made it in that group that kind of made it out and obviously became the chief evangelist and stuff like that? But how did you, yeah. think, what, well, what are some qualities you think that made that happen? Well, dog shed luck was one thing. Uh, I, I think that, well, for sure. I loved Macintosh. That was true love. Right. And uh, my perspective is loving the product is much of the battle. And uh, I truly loved and still love Macintosh. So that helped. And also I was willing to grind it out. You know, the work ethic was pounded into me. So, mm. so that was not hard. Or, I mean, it was not hard to work hard because I had been trained to work hard and uh and also i mean let's you know let's just be honest a lot of people like to talk about courage and grit and determination and blah 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 
but I would say the single largest factor is just dumb shit luck. I mean, you know, I, I was in the right place at the right time with the right friend. My parents sacrificed for my education. You know, I, I wasn't born in the middle of a third world country, you know, without electricity and water and all that. I mean, that, <laughs> I wasn't a billionaire's kid, but, you know, in respect to the rest of the world, I hit the jackpot. Just just being born, I hit the jackpot. And I came from a lower middle class family in Hawaii. Do you did you have that? And I'm I'm I want, I'm fascinated by where you'll go with this. But do you have that perspective now, looking back, or did you have that perspective then? Did that, that help you in your career going forward? Kind of realizing, hey, listen, I'm grateful for just the opportunity here. Uh, I think that I came to that later in my career. I mean, for a while, you're so full of yourself, you believe that you, quote, unquote, deserve what you got, mm. right? And that you worked hard, you know, you had brilliant insight, whatever, whatever. And and don't get me wrong, people do work hard and have brilliant insights. But I think that, you know, if one were really honest, you would also understand that a lot of it is just the luck of the draw, that, you know, that that's... I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, take an extreme case. I don't know if Bill Gates were born in the middle of a third world country, completely impoverished, one of six children. It's not clear to me that he, he would be where he is today. Yeah. I don't care how smart he is. Yeah. What, what are, uh, what are some mistakes you've made looking back? Well, I, I left Apple twice. <laughs> <laughs> I turned Steve Jobs down for another job. That's three. Uh, I declined to interview for the first CEO position of Yahoo. So right there, that's wait. Why, why did you? Why did you turn? Why did you turn Steve down for the? Well, the third job? partially it was at a time where you know who knew if Apple would succeed, and, and I mean, you could make the case that anybody. I was employee number five thousand and forty-one at Apple, and you could make the case that anyone who left Apple in the last, I don't know. Well, I I left Apple the, the second time in 1997. So let's say, you know, if you left Apple in the last 20 years, you made a mistake. I mean, but <laughs> who among us knew that Apple would become a trillion dollar company? Hmm. I mean, obviously, if I knew that, I would have stuck around, right? But uh, who knew? So, you know, partially I turned him down because I just, I didn't think Apple would succeed. And also because I just... I didn't want to deal with the bullshit. Um, you know, you definitely have to buy into the reality distortion field there. What do you mean by that? I mean that there's a certain Apple way and you have to like, you know, with a big personality like Steve, uh, let's just say it's it's not a d- democracy. It's a benign autocracy. Hmm. So it's kind of one way or the highway kind of thing? Uh, more or less. And now it's just very fortunate that, you know, with Steve Jobs one way or the highway, but Steve Jobs was right most of the time. You know, one way or the highway is not that hard. It's one way or the highway and the highway is the, or excuse me, let's say it again. One way or the highway is not that hard if the one way is right. That's the hard part is making sure that the one way the autocrat is right. There are a lot of autocrats in the world. There are a lot of dictators. There are a lot of, you know, egomaniac CEOs. 
but uh, that's that's a dime a dozen. You know, one is in a criminal trial right now, but the hard part is being right, yeah. <laughs> not being autocratic. How do you think, you know, in obviously one of his more famous speeches at uh, the Stanford commencement, when he talks yeah. about kind of connecting the dots, looking back, how do you think he had that vision looking forward that this was going to work? Was he just going to make it work or? Well, like, <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm a mere mortal. I cannot explain the Steve Jobs phenomena. Uh, he certainly was probably more right than any other CEO in the history of American business Maybe Elon Musk is rivaling him, maybe even surpassed Steve, but Steve Jobs was right most of the time. And you cannot say that about very many CEOs. Uh, so that's one of the dangers of looking at Steve Jobs as an example, which is, you know, you look at him and you say, all right, so he was, he was difficult to work for. He was arrogant. He wore blue jeans, black mock turtle deck. You know, he, he drove, well, sometimes he drove a Mercedes, sometimes he drove a Porsche. He would drive these in the carpool lane by himself. He'd park in the handicapped slot, you know. And so you look at all those things, you say, okay, so I'm going to buy black mock turtleneck. I'm going to buy, you know, jeans. I'm going to wear New Balance tennis shoes. I'm going to buy a Mercedes. I'm going to park in the handicapped slot and I'll be a Steve Jobs. Not really. You'll just be an asshole. That's an interesting. There, there, there's probably some of those intangibles that just no one can, no one can get. <laughs> yeah, right? I would, I would say that there are some intangibles. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's yeah. That's like saying there's fish in the ocean. Yeah, there are some. Well, is there is there? I and mean, I know there's probably a lot of stuff, but anything off the top of your head you're thinking of that maybe the one of the lessons or two that you learned from, well, from working for I, him. I learned, I learned from Steve that your current customer cannot really tell you how to revolutionize the business most of the time if not all the time your current customer will tell you how to make something better faster or cheaper of what you already do so you know no apple II owner said make a macintosh and no macintosh owner said make ios and no ios person is telling apple to do what's next i don't know who's telling apple what's next. <laughs> so I hope somebody is, uh, but that's, it's very difficult to ask a customer, you know, how do we revolutionize the world that it takes luck and it takes a Steve jobs. It takes vision. It takes, it takes luck. <laughs> I really think so. Well, one of the things, and again, I saw that you had said in the past about kind of getting in, and maybe I'm, I'm going to botch this, but like getting to the next curve, kind of seeing yeah. beyond, can you share again, folks that are starting companies, um, you know, whether they're early stage or they're moving forward, mm -hmm. thinking differently about not trying to solve maybe a problem that exists today, but looking ahead. Yeah. Any, any thoughts for them? Well, I mean, if you look at it, I, and the example I always cite is ice. So ice 1.0 was ice harvesting, frozen lake or pond. Ice 2.0 was ice factory, freezing water, any city, any time of year, essentially. Ice 3.0 was refrigerator. And so to truly be revolutionary, you would have gone from harvesting to factory to refrigerator, but nobody did that because most companies define their business in terms of what they already do. So if you define yourself as a harvester, you don't embrace factory. If you, if you define yourself as a factory, you don't embrace, guess what, refrigerator. And you know, in 1975, an engineer at Kodak invented digital photography. 
Well, guess what? I mean, can you imagine him going to his boss saying, I figured out a way people don't have to buy film anymore. Well, that went over really big, I bet. So, and yet, you know, if Kodak had jumped to the next curve and, and embraced digital photography, who knows how big they would be, right? And, and so that's the difficult thing because no customer of buying Kodak film was saying, I want a system where I don't have to buy film and it's on a digital sensor and it's instant feedback and I print, you know, after the fact, only the few, I don't have to develop the entire role. Nobody was saying that because it was just, you know, that's like asking a fish to describe what it's like to fly, although there are flying fish, but, you know, it, it, it's just not in their scope. And so that's, that's where the action really is. And that's the hardest thing of all. Do you feel though, that's why probably a lot of smaller companies have, they, they're more nimble. They yes. can kind of make those bets, if you well, will. In a sense, they have to make that bet, right? Because you're not yeah. going to outfilm Kodak. Yeah. And so they have to make that bet. They also, they don't have the 90-day financial return problem of a publicly traded company. They also don't have the inertia where the sales force is selling film, um, the engineers are making film, the manufacturers are making film. I mean, everything is geared towards film. And all of a sudden, you're going to say, all right, guess what, guys? We're going to do digital sensors. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. So... Uh, the the two guys in a garage, two gals in a garage, a guy and a gal in a garage have a certain set of advantages. No install base, no garbage to carry, no baggage to carry, uh, unencumbered by old techniques and, you know, closed-minded thinking, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, two guys or gals in a garage, they don't have capital, they don't have brand awareness, they don't have employees, they don't have anything. So, I mean, the grass is always greener. Just a couple more questions. I'm, I'm sure. gonna, then I'm going to get you out on those waves. Um, All right. I know you're itching for it. But I, I did want to talk on, on kind of two other topics. And one, I don't know how much you talk about if you do it all, but um, can we chat about parenting for a minute? Is that okay? Parenting? Yes. And here's what God here's help what, you. God well, help what, you. Here's yeah. what I wanted to ask about this because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if you guys ask this a lot. So I have a nine-year-old. And when I talk to a lot of folks that are entrepreneurs or founders or whatever, they do some things a little different with their kids in terms yeah. of getting them thinking differently. You know, again, showing the world a bigger place than maybe yeah. it is. So I'm curious, did you do anything raising kids, um, anything that maybe would be helpful for folks out there to get their kids thinking? Cause I think if we get them started at a younger age, thinking differently, that could really well, make that monumental for I, them. I don't consider myself an expert in parenting at all. And I, I would say some thoughts I have, not necessarily recommendations. <laughs> um, some thoughts are that um, I, I think that you should just enable your children to have a broad exposure to things. And so to, to enable them to find interesting things as opposed to passion. I think passion is too high a bar. When you say you have to have a passion for something, uh, it means like you've singularly focused at six years old, you develop a passion for violin and you know you're going to be a violinist for the rest of your life. I think that's utter bullshit. So I think the parent should expose kids to a lot of things. Some interests will come, some will go. And over the course of a few decades, you know, some interests will turn into true passions. You should knock on wood, be so lucky that that happens, but it's about exposure. And, you know, it, it, 
I don't think parents should live through their kids. You know, I'm not forcing my kids to become Macintosh evangelists or marketers mm-hmm. or social media. Um, and I'm not forcing them to become surfers because I love surfing. Actually, they love surfing. So I took up surfing. So I work completely the opposite. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, when you go to these, these athletic events in particular, or, you know, anything, I mean, if you go to athletic events or I would suppose it applies to spelling bees and all that too, where the parents are there. And, you know, I mean, who's that kid playing hockey for the parent or the kid? I mean, you know, and, and what's, I mean, if you just look at mathematically, so, let's let's take hockey so i don't know there are two million kids in in canada playing hockey um how many are going to end up professional hockey players i don't know a thousand five hundred so five hundred or two million Uh, that's not good odds on the other hand um you know how many engineers does google have about a quarter million so there's a quarter million engineers it'd be much smarter to teach your kids to program than to play hockey uh, it's just statistically, <laughs> it's yeah. a lot better bet, but, you know, go, go find me. The parent is like cheering his kid or her kid on as an engineer or a STEM. Um, I don't and know. <laughs> would you agree though? The, and, and part of the reason I asked is that to your point is try things, test, taste things. And by the way, yeah. you may not like them, but that's okay. You can at least check it off the list. Like I've done it. And to your point, I think I hear this a lot is like, yeah, I'm going to put my kid in insert, whatever baseball, tennis, you know, hockey, and then they're going to do that for 13 straight years. Well, now they hate it when they're 19 and they have no right. other skills. Right. 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 I, I think that is a big mistake. And, you know, it's, I got to tell you though, you know, it's a fine line between forcing a kid to do something that he or she doesn't want to do, want to do versus letting a kid give up too easily. So I interviewed someone named Angela Duckworth for my podcast. And she had a very interesting test. She said that, you know, her kids can quit anything, but they have to quit at a high point, right? So if you, I don't know, if you let take an extreme example. So if you took up hockey and, you know, you, you played for a few years and you loved it and I don't know, all of a sudden you weren't on the first line and you weren't in the, you know, triple A club and you weren't scouted and all that. So you quit because you're, you know, you feel like you're a loser. Um, that, that would be quitting as a loser. You need to quit on a high. So after you win the championship, quit, <laughs> that's when you should quit. So I tell you, when my podcast has got 5 million subscribers, I'm going <laughs> to quit. That's when I'm quitting. Just Not drop now. the mic and you're done. Yeah, that's it. Aloha. Oi. <laughs> well, last thing I want, I appreciate your insight there. Uh, but last thing I wanted to ask you was about what you're doing. You, you said you're semi-retired, but the decision to go to Canva and do some of the stuff with yeah. them, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if there was a certain reason that you did that. I, I know, <laughs> I know when uh, I was, again, doing some research, I saw one of the things you did, I think, learn from Steve was around design counts. Like that's a huge part of it. So yeah. I don't know if that was part of it, like seeing the future of here, but I'm, I'm curious if you can share kind of why well, the decision to go that route. Well, Canva found me because my uh, social media maven who does much of my social media or was doing much of my social media, she was using Canva. Hmm. And so she was using Canva to make graphics for tweets. And so they contacted me because they noticed that. And when they contacted me, I just double checked with her. And I said, you know, isn't this thing we use? Yep. Do you like it? Yep. Should I help them? Yep. (laughs) And the rest is history. So, I mean, 
even that, you know, was that, I don't want, I don't want to give people the impression that Guy Kawasaki was like doing this extensive intellectual programmatic, well-designed survey of potential new companies and technologies and settled upon Canva with great decision and precision and, you know, McKinsey-esque insights. That would be total utter bullshit. They found me, my assistant said, you ought to help them and the rest is history. That's how it went down. And, um, you know, I don't know how you attribute that to anything but luck or, uh, or I, you know, at least I was smart enough to have a great assistant who knew graphics better than I did. Why did you, so you could have said no. Why do you, what, what was the reason you said yes? Because A, she said, yes, you should help them. And B, it, it did not take a great intellectual capability to figure out, huh, if this is true and many more people can make graphics than using Photoshop, that's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, duh. Like if everybody Photoshop for the rest of us, duh. Uh, that's like saying Macintosh, you know, anybody can use a Macintosh. Not everybody could use MS-DOS. Well, duh, of course that's a good thing. So, you know, life is sometimes full of duhism, especially looking backwards. <laughs> well, that's a good point. And, and maybe a, uh, something to end on around that. And I'd like to ask, you know, kind of getting started advice, someone getting started today. Again, they yeah. could be starting a business. They could be yeah. wanting to start a garden. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They have a post-it note they're putting on their computer. They're going to look at it every day. What piece of advice would you put on that post-it note to share with them to kind of get them motivated and inspired? I would say stop looking at that note and get to work. How's that? Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's great. Well, you got you no, got no, you okay. got to I'll work. give I you mean, a better true. one. So, no, it's. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that you need to you need to empathize with people, and and empathy means you know put yourself in their place what kind of pain can you solve or what kind of supplement can you provide but it's empathy now and and that does not preclude uh the fact that these people may not be able to describe what they need so it's that's not contrary to what i said about your current customers have a very difficult time explaining how to revolutionize a business. Mm. If you were in the shoes of people using MS-DOS or Unix or something, you, you probably could have empathized and said, my God, it is so hard to configure this and do this. There should be a better system. There should be a, a more user-friendly system. That's empathy. That would have led to Macintosh. Mm. So... Uh, now, the person using Unix or MS-DOS might not be able to articulate that it's WYSIWYG, trash can icon, you know, point and click, mouse, all that kind of stuff. But so that's that's why you can't get that level of detail. But you should be able to empathize and say, man, this is way too hard. There's got to be a better way to do computing than what people are doing. Hmm. One question on that, if I could, I'm going to take a, a slight side road. But yeah. So when someone's going that route, yeah. At what point do you involve the customers and accept their feedback? Right after you ship. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right before you ship, but it's very hard because, uh, you know, if, I mean, this is kind of being sarcastic, but if you went to an Apple II user early in the development of Macintosh and said, so, in, you know, how would you like a new computer where all the software you've just bought is not used 
And so you have to buy all new software and there's going to be this thing called a mouse and it has a button in it. And that's how you move the cursor around. And, you know, it's going to be able to print in multiple fonts. What's a font? Uh, it's going to be able to draw graphics. Why would I need to draw graphics? I just need a spreadsheet. I need rows and columns. I mean, yeah. it is, so I don't know how you ask people about something that is so different. Mm -hmm. um, it would be like saying to someone, so, you know, you haven't surfed. Well, let me tell you something. So you're going to get in the water and it's going to be the hardest thing you ever tried. And for like the first year, you won't even be able to stand up, but ultimately you'll love it. I mean, how many people do you think are going to take up surfing when you <laughs> describe it that way? Yeah. So, uh, that's that's what it takes. So get it out there and then offer offer the opportunity well, for feedback. Uh, well, there's that's one method, but another method is build what you want to use. Mm, build what yeah. you want to use and just hope that you're not the only psychopath in the world who wants to use it. That's a good way to end this one. Okay. Yeah, this was a, this was a lot of fun. I I certainly appreciate you coming on and uh, All right. I know we went on some randomness, so I hope that hey, was okay. Random is good. Random is good. But I appreciate Alrighty. it. And uh, thanks so much. And, and I remind everyone where they could uh, find the podcast. Okay. Um, the second best podcast in the world, first one being the one we're on recording right now, is called Remarkable People. And you just go to remarkablepeople.com. Duh. And there you'll find 200 interviews of the most remarkable people you ever, ever will encounter. Thanks again, guy. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Hey everyone, just one more quick thing before you skip along in your day. You know, if you do enjoy this content or other things that I've put out or just enjoy learning more and trying to adapt your thinking uh, to become happier each and every day, there's a couple of things that you may benefit from. Um, if you go to my website, brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe, you can sign up for my newsletter that goes out once a week. And that's really a digest of a lot of information that I gather throughout the weeks, whether it's a new video that I think could be informative or a podcast that's been valuable to me, book that I might read, etc. Um, secondly, I blog three times a week, and these are more micro blogs, one to five minute reads, short digestible blogs that'll send right to your inbox on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. So check that out on my website, brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe if you think it's something you might enjoy. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.